Welcome to this edition of the ASHA Podcast. I'm Fred Wyan, Director of Communications with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. We've seen seismic shifts in the cervical cancer screening landscape since the 1990s with the development of new technologies such as human papillomavirus DNA tests, which detect the genetic material of the high-risk types of HPV that are found with virtually all cases of cervical cancer. And this differs from the iconic pap test, of course, which looks not for the virus, but for abnormal cervical cell changes that might be indicative of HPV and associated cervical precancers and cancers. And accordingly, cervical cancer screening guidelines have been through major overhauls, the, a big one in 2012 that ushered in a couple of approaches to screening, uh, HPV and pap co-testing for women ages 30 to 65 done every five years, or pap testing alone every three years for women ages 21 to 65. Uh, in either case, the time-honored tradition of the annual pap was no more. And a short time after all that, the first HPV primary test was approved to screen for cervical cancer. And this is really a new twist, where an HPV test is used alone with a subsequent follow-up pap that's only done with certain results. And so lots of changes, and they keep coming. In the fall of this year, 2017, the United States Preventive Services Task Force issued draft guidance of new cervical cancer screening guidelines. Um, so this is a documented process, but under the proposed the draft guidelines, there, the calls for screening women ages 21 to 29 every three years with a PAP alone, with high-risk HPV testing alone recommended every five years for women ages 30 to 65. That's a lot to take in, and I'm, I think I've managed to confuse myself already, but no worries. So today we're going to be joined by Dr. Mark Einstein of the Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. He's an expert in this field. He's professor and chair of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Women's Health. He's also an assistant dean of the medical school's research unit. Dr. Einstein, wow, that's a lot to take in, but thank you for spending some time to help us think through all this today. Thank you for allowing me to talk to you today, Fred. Oh, absolutely. So first, I want to ask you about the extended intervals. Uh, the annual PAP was such a tradition. Why have we moved to longer periods between screening exams, really regardless of the approach? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, one might, might think in general more is better. And as a gynecologic oncologist, we like to think, boy, the, the more we treat, the, the better we have at, at, at treating these very difficult cancers. Uh, but what we've learned over the last few years, when it comes to screening, more might not be better. In fact, more might actually cause harm. Let's step it back in history a little bit. In the early 1900s, cervical cancer was the number one cancer killer of women in the United States. Mm. I know. We're like, and now it doesn't even make the top 10 since we've been doing yeah. tests. So we have, we have this great tool of screening, and it's worked remarkably well over the years. And it has drastically reduced the burden of cervical cancer, which is great. As somebody who takes care of patients that have cervical cancer, I look forward to the day that I don't have to see another woman suffer from cervical cancer again. And I do believe that we have a lot of those tools that are there. But what we've learned is that more might not be better. In fact, all while, while, while doing pap tests annually certainly picks up cervical cancer well, um, it also picks up these other manifestations of abnormalities that are essentially just an active HPV infection. And HPV is, as you mentioned earlier, the hu is human papillomavirus. 
HPV is ubiquitous. Everyone's got it. I always tell my patients, look to the person right of you, look to the person left of you, look to the person behind you. They've all had it at some point in time in their life. But in most people, it goes away. And in some people, though, it does stick around. And in those people that it sticks around, it sometimes it can lead to cancer. But sometimes during screening, all we're doing is really just picking up an active HPV infection. And I don't have a pill or a shot to make that go away. So what we've learned over the last few years is by screening annually, it doesn't increase the pickup of cervical cancer in the general population. All it does is increase the number of colposcopies, which is the next test that we have to do. And what a colposcopy is, is where we're actually taking a magnifying scope and we're looking at the cervix and we're looking at some specific findings on the cervix that might clue the clinical provider into thinking that there might be some abnormality that might be either a precancer or even a cervical cancer. And then sometimes we do a biopsy no bigger than my pen tip mm-hmm. to see what that is. And the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, uh, the same task force that has, uh, has draft recommendations that you had mentioned earlier, they, they have actually defined colposcopy as a harm of screening, Okay. So all this annual screening has done is it increases the number of colposcopy, but does not increase the rate of picking up cervical cancer. And that's the objective of screening, is to pick up women that have potentially precancerous cells before they even become cancer. Um, and so what by, by spacing it out a little bit, we're more efficiently getting to the few women that might have some sort of clinically concerning disease and, uh, and, and not... Uh, causing what the U.S. Task Force has defined as harm on those that don't have disease. Colposcopy, while it is a, a minimal procedure uh, as a, from a clinical standpoint, um, and while the procedure itself has very minimal risks, some of those risks include uh, bleeding. Um, it could include uh, a little bit of pain at the time of a biopsy. Um, but there's a lot of anxiety. There's missed time from work. And there are a number of other things um, that a woman has to go through in order to get a colposcopy. And oftentimes, they need more than one colposcopy because sometimes one colposcopy doesn't tell the whole story or we have to see them again for another colposcopy in a short interval, sometimes, you know, in a matter of like six to 12 months. Um, And so this is really the harm of, of potentially finding what are abnormalities that are essentially just a manifestation of an active HPV infection but because we as clinicians can't see these precancerous cells, we have to do a colposcopy to be able to diagnose it. Yeah, and, and my understanding is that a lot of these abnormalities, if left alone, would just would clear naturally. The vast majority of these abnormalities, if left alone, would clear naturally. However, we as providers don't have that crystal ball to know in which women it will clear and which are the few women that it might progress, which is why women that have specific abnormalities have to be on what we call active surveillance, where we're actively managing them and seeing them on a regular basis. Right. Talk a bit about the change that was ushered in with HPV testing. I mean, how does this impact how clinicians counsel and manage women who may be at risk for cervical cancer? Uh, HPV testing uh, it was uh, a a wonderful addition to cervical cancer screening. Now, why, why is that? Well, HPV testing is a molecular test that is a very, very sensitive test. It's far more sensitive than just a PAP alone. All right, the testing that we use to actually find HPV is something that is uh, an automated test 
that could actually identify HPV if HPV is present more than 99% of the time. So it's a very sensitive and efficient way at finding HPV. And everyone that gets one of these cervical precancerous lesions or cervical cancer has to have an active HPV infection. That is fact, okay? So the thinking is, that if we could actually enrich the population of individuals that might need either further management or might need actually further triage to colposcopy with a very, very sensitive test, we'll be more efficient at finding the potential needle, needle in the haystack of patients that might actually need something more than just a PAP, okay? So it is actually enriching the uh, clinician and enriching the patient experience in order to really efficiently find the disease that might be relevant. So in the introduction, I mentioned the new wrinkle of HPV primary testing, where the HPV test is decoupled from a path, it's just used alone. Um, would you talk a bit, how well does this approach work in catching precancers before they become dangerous? Well, this approach has actually been uh, looked at in a number of studies, not only in the United States, but in many uh, uh of the, of the sort of higher income areas that have had longstanding screening programs existing for a long period of time. And the data has shown that this approach <clears throat> actually is just as efficient, if not maybe even more efficient, than doing it in the traditional approach with a PAP or with what you had mentioned before, co-testing, okay? Now, the thinking is that instead of starting with the less sensitive test, which is a PAP, okay, and then going to a more sensitive test, which is an HPV test, to actually start with the more sensitive test to really enrich the population of people that are most at risk, all right? And then, in some cases, potentially go to the less sensitive test, which is a PAP, okay? So instead of starting with the less sensitive st to, uh, test, start with a more sensitive test to have really enrich the population of women that might be at risk. Okay. So what, what about PAP and HPV coast testing? I mean, some were surprised to see that it wasn't part of the task force's draft guidelines. Uh, will this still be the approach of some clinicians? Well, I, I think time will tell. Um, oftentimes, clinical practices um, change far after guidelines. We've learned that as a clinician. I could tell you that a lot of my clinical workflow is hardwired into my head, um, and so it takes a little bit of time for those changes to exist. But uh, to answer the initial questions you had as to why that is the case, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has done extensive modeling, and there have been additional studies, including one that recently came out um, uh, from the group at the intramural group at the National Cancer Institute that actually showed that co-testing um, does not add a tremendous amount of increase in predicting cancer or altering uh, cancer outcomes than HPV tests alone. So the addition of a PAP on top of an HPV test, as opposed to an HPV alone, there's really not much of a difference in terms of the yield and outcomes of identifying clinically relevant disease. You know, sometimes it's hard to embrace change, I think, for both patients and providers alike. I know that uh, when the extended guidelines first came out, I believe in 2012, um, we know we received some pushback from women who would contact, who would contact us, and their thinking was, well, these are bean counters who, who are denying me my annual pap because it costs too much. 
And uh, we also, I just also know from some surveys and from talking with folks that a number of clinicians don't always, you know, adhere to the guidelines too. So there's sort of a, I guess there's a learning curve for both patients and providers. I mean, um, I mean, is that, I, I mean, are, do you think that's, that's true? Is that accurate? Is that still pretty much the case today or is, or is this pretty much just going along? It's, this is just the way people are going to be doing things now. Well, I, I do think that everyone needs to be educated as to reasons we do or don't do things. Um, I think it would be very easy to look at costs. I'll be, you know, to be brutally honest with you, there is there the the cost or the reimbursement for a PAP test is 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 quite frankly just not even worth it. Okay, um, yeah. so you know, it's not. Trust me, there is no real cost adjustments to anything. And, you know, yes, there are women that have spent much of their reproductive life getting annual PAPs. So this is certainly a change for patients. And, and one might think, oh, my doctor doesn't, doesn't love me as much because they, they don't want to, you know, do those tests on me. But I think that patients need to understand and hopefully that we'll educate them as we go along with it. And I tell all my patients this, it takes me about 30 seconds to tell them that um, doing more PAPs on you will just increase the risk that I'm going to have to do a colposcopy on you, which was actually potentially going to be a little bit of a painful procedure. It will take some time out of your day. And so I'd rather not, you know, harm you like that. And instead, I'd rather do it the way that the data tells us to do it, which is doing it in longer intervals. Okay. Now, uh, I, I want to ask you a bit more about HPV primary and how it fits into the draft guidelines we've been talking about. So correct me if I'm wrong, but when HPV primary was approved, it was for use in women 25 and older, as I recall. And I believe the, gu the draft guidelines are calling for that to be the approach with women 30 and, and, and older. So why is it used with women who are older, not just with all women? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. And I think it, really we have to get down to the epidemiology of HPV incidence itself. Okay. We know that the incidence of HPV infection peaks in women at a very young age. However, uh, the actual identification of clinically relevant disease is incredibly uncommon at women at that age. So HPV infection is very high, but, but identifying disease is, is very low in these women, and that's a good thing. You know, we're not, we don't see a lot of 21, 22-year-olds that have this sort of clinically relevant disease. Does it exist? Yes. It's, it's not 0%, but it's far less than like a 30-year-old, all right, who might have a persistent HPV infection, all right? So the reason for that, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendation for the age cut point of 30 is because of just how ubiquitous an HPV infection is in a 25-year-old versus a 30-year-old. That five-year difference, there's a big difference in the, in the incidence of persistent HPV between those two age ranges, and that's why the task force had said that 30 is, is the really the the more prudent approach so that um, uh, there aren't people that are going into secondary testing and have a less likelihood of disease. Uh, prior to actually the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force recommendation, the Society of Gynecologic Oncology and the Society for Lower General Tract Disease, the AFCCP, had put together interim guidance that essentially stated a very similar thing to the task force. But one thing that the, that the interim guidance had suggested at the time of the first FDA-approved a test for a primary HPV screening was SGO and ASCCP and in addition to the, to the group of individuals that were part of that interim guidance was that further study needs to happen for that age range between the ages of 25 and 30. Plus, there are additional questions of what to do. What if somebody starts out by having a co-test at age 21? What happens when they're 25? 
Do they have just an HPV test? Do they consider continue with co-testing? We don't have a, a tremendous amount of guidance on that right now, but there'll be more to come as time goes on. So this next question is self-serving a bit uh, because we still have these conversations, and I referenced it earlier, women who, who still contact us and they're not terribly comfortable with going as long as five years between uh, screening exams. What would you, just uh, a couple of quick bullet points, what do you tell your patients who, who are like, five years, really? Well, uh, the long screening intervals is really based on some very, very, very strong data to suggest that the chances, if somebody has a negative PAP, and a negative HPV, the chance that they're going to have cervical cancer within the next three to five years is infinitesimally small, okay? It's not zero, all right? There's no such thing as zero in our business, but it's infinitesimally small. And the actual, the actual whether it's three or four or five years, the risk of picking, the, the, the chances of picking it up at either of those times is essentially the same, which is why there's not any really much of a difference between the three-year interval and the five-year interval. Um, uh, yes, I think it is a little challenging for, for, for patients and it, it even is challenging for providers to wait that long between screens, yeah. okay? Um, but there is, you know, good data behind this guidance. And um, I think that we're going to, you know, continue to see, you know, an increased interval um, based on what is really, really good data. Okay. We've been chatting with Dr. Mark Einstein, a longtime friend of ASHA. Uh, you may remember, Dr. Einstein, so, several years ago, you and I did an interview on vulvar and vaginal cancers. And gosh, that had to be four or five years ago, I'm thinking. And you know, I still reference that one. So I hope sometime in 2018 and throughout the new year, maybe we can, uh, we can work together again, because I'm sure there'll be a lot more of this to come out of all this. But, but thank you. Thanks for chatting today and helping us sort it all out. I really appreciate your time. Uh, I look forward to further discussions with Asha, and thank you very much, Fred. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast. We'll have more to come, so check back often. We're online at ashasexualhealth.org, and, of course, follow us on Twitter at InfoAsha, and be our friend on Facebook. Um, you can also sign up on the website to receive Asha's update emails. Like when we roll out new resources like this interview with Dr. Einstein, uh, we'll, we send those out in nice digest form. So if you want to be on the cutting edge with us, let us know. Until next time, this is Fred Wyant for ASHA. So long, everybody.